I don't know about the two of you, but I kind of suspect something. I suspect that by starting the discussion of the church in this way, rather than by talking about the hierarchical structure of the church, the authority of bishops, the authority of the Bishop of Rome, and so forth, I suspect that the Council Fathers of Vatican II were wanting to consciously reach out to the Eastern churches and to Protestants as well by approaching it in this way. And to say, in, in some sense, let us begin by saying how much we agree yes. and, or that we agree with so much of what you believe about the church in terms of her inner nature. Welcome to another Strong Enough for Him, but pH Balanced for Her episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken and Kenny. I'm Matt Swaim, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network, joined by my colleagues, Ken Hensley, who is Director of Pastoral Care, Kenny Burchard, Director of Development. We all came from various backgrounds in the evangelical world and all ended up Catholic, and that's what this particular show is all about. This series we're doing is on the church. You can find previous episodes of On the Journey and lots of other cool stuff at chnetwork.org. We'd love to meet you over there. We'd also love to talk to you, if you're able, in our online community, which you can find at community.chnetwork.org. Of course, all of this is made possible by the generous support of donors. And if you want to join them in their support of our work, you can go to chnetwork.org slash compass. Gentlemen, how are you? I'm, I'm recovering from I'm recovering from the pain of your introduction. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least there's strong enough for me. <laughs> I, I, I'm okay though. I'm, I'm fine. Something about pH balance. Lord, it has been four know. days. There will be a stench. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're yeah, we're talking four, about the church four minutes. today. Four minutes. Four minutes of of, uh, of intro. So we're talking Let's about the church today, and this is this whole series is, is going to be about the church. So Ken, if you could yeah. catch us up to where we are today. Well, we began last week by by talking about uh, our thoughts back when we were Protestants about the church and whatnot. Um, I want to begin today by just talking, uh, saying a word about our approach on this particular series, because the series that we're doing here on Catholic ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, it's going to be a little different than the series that we've done in the past for the On the Journey with Matt and Ken and, and Kenny show, um, mainly in this way. In the series that we've done in the past, whether on Sola Scriptura, uh, scripture and tradition, whether on the papacy or Eucharist, Mary, whatever, the pattern that we've followed has been to focus almost entirely on the process of thought that led us, each of us individually, from what we once believed when we were Protestants to what we now believe as Catholics. Um, the emphasis was always on our conversion to the Catholic teaching, on our particular journey. In other words, autobiographical Catholic apologetics is has been the focus on our and in the series we've done thus far. And while this emphasis will come through in this series as well, in this particular series, what we decided to do is a little different. We're going to work our way through the entire section on the church in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that is paragraphs 748 through 945, if you have a catechism. Um, we're going to work our way through the entire section expounding on Catholic ecclesiology 
and then commenting along the way on our own stories. And there are some important, there are important differences, of course, that are going to come out um, as to what we believed when we were Protestants, certainly for me when I was a Baptist pastor, and I'm sure for you as well, and what we believe now. Uh, these differences will come out, but but I but I got to say, and I I want to say right at the beginning that as I've read through this material a couple of times, preparing for this series, the thing that has struck me the most really is how much of it I believed when I was a Baptist minister years and years yeah. before I ever even conceived of the of thinking about the Catholic Church, and so I put it this way: it's not so much that I believe differently now, although there are some ways in which I do. As it is that as a Catholic, I believe more than I did before. Not so much differently, but more. More about the church. Would you gentlemen be willing to say amen to that a little bit? I can absolutely concur to that, and I want to hear Kenny's thoughts as well. Um, I think, as with many of these topics that we've discussed before, what I found was um, I didn't realize how low my ecclesiology was, how low my opinion Mm. was of the church. Uh, We talked about this actually in relation to the Mary series, and she's going to come up throughout our series on the church for reasons that will become apparent. But um, I, I realized that the church in thinking through a lot of topics, Mary being one, the church being one, communion, baptism, had just yeah. a much, they'd pay a lot more attention to things that I would gloss over. And the church is just a great example of this. Uh, if Christ really did come and say something to people and want it to be carried out, uh, there's just, the church has thought a lot about the implications of that. Um, the Catholic Church, that is, whereas mm-hmm. the churches that I went to, um, I I, I believed gotcha. that there was this invisible church and that we were all somehow part of it, but it was not fleshed out the way that the, that what we're about to read mm-hmm. is fleshed out. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I think of um, kind of my, my prior ecclesiology as that which gave me uh, theological placeholders, you know, things that mm-hmm. were in the shape of of what I now understand and, and believe, you know, having heard the Catholic understanding of these things. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm supremely blessed and I owe so much to my, my previous mentors and teachers and, and pastors and influences who gave me the shape of things. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, I think especially we'll see that so many of the things that we believed before um, we we had a placeholder for it, but now our Catholic understanding fills in that place in dramatic detail. So, amen. Yeah, amen to that. And and uh, we'll be doing quite a bit of reading then in this series as well, because we really want to tie everything we have to say into the catechism. And frankly, I want to expose those who are watching and listening to the catechism, not simply to you know Ken Hensley's brain or my thoughts or anything like that. Okay, here's how the catechism begins this section on the church. Under the heading from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. So I'm I'm reading paragraph 748 and then commenting on it. Christ is the light of humanity, and it is accordingly the heartfelt desire of this sacred council. We're referring to the, the Council Vatican II. It is the heartfelt desire of this sacred council being gathered together in the Holy Spirit that by proclaiming this gospel to every creature, it may bring to all men that light of Christ which shines out visibly from the church. These words open the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on the church, the document titled Lumen Gentium. By choosing this starting point, the council demonstrates that the article of faith about the church depends entirely on the articles concerning Christ Jesus. 
The church has no other light than Christ's, according to a favorite image of the church fathers. The church is like the moon, all its light reflected from the sun. And I, I, I let me begin by saying that as a Baptist, if someone had put this paragraph in front of me and read it to me, I would have thought, what a beautiful, what a wonderful way to begin talking about the church. The church has no light of her own, gentlemen. To the extent that the church functions, in fact, as a light in the world at all, it's only because Christ, and to the extent that Christ is in his church, speaking through his church, working in and through his church, serving the world through his church. The church is the moon. I, I love that image. Jesus is the sun whose light is reflected in the church. That is when our sins have not like dark rain clouds uh, blocked out that light. It's Christ's light and Christ's light alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So okay, I wanted to, yeah, go ahead. Uh, to just key in on the moon image for a moment because it's such a cool image for so many reasons. And when I was doing the, uh, the Mary foreshadowing right now, uh, this is partly why. So I've got this this uh, Benedictine monk friend from Australia who does these translations of, you know, forgotten works. His name is Father Nixon, Father Robert Nixon. And he did this one called Crown of the Virgin by St. Ildefonsus of Toledo. Uh, don't mm-hmm. try and spell that, you know, without a little help. Uh, but in in this book, he's talking about the various images that are you know reflective of the virtues of Mary, you know, gemstones and flowers and stuff. And one of the things is the moon. And this is actually a, an image that has been used quite a bit in reference to Mary. Um So it says this about the moon. It says, The moon receives its own light from the supreme light and source of all light, the sun, and thus serves to illuminate the night. It is mild and lovely, casting refreshing dew upon the earth while exposing thieves in the hours of darkness and repelling them from from their nefarious deeds. Uh, You reflect God's magnificence in your own being, but you do this in a mild form, gentle yet clear, communicating and transmitting the light of the sun faithfully. And thus you illumine the night of our sorrow and put the flight, the impulse to sin, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think we talked about in this series with with Mary how sometimes if you're having difficulty with understanding Mary, uh, you know, sometimes the easiest thing to do is take the word Mary and substitute it with the word church. And I think this is a perfect example of this. Mary receives no—she doesn't—she's not the origin of her own purity or light or— <laughs> She's merely transmitting what has been given to her yep. by the true light. And in the same way, I mean, we're going to see this this image overlapping over and over through the course of this, and, and even in when we call the, the church a mother. But I just love this idea of the moon because, I mean, if the sun were to go out, moon would have no light. It just would not. <laughs> there is no Zero. light coming from the moon without the sun. Zero, yes, no light. Okay, now uh, in paragraph 749, this same thought is continued and expanded on a little bit. So let me read that. The article concerning the church also depends entirely on the article about the Holy Spirit, which immediately precedes it. So you have the articles about God, and that is in the in the um, in the creeds, the articles about Jesus Christ, then the articles about the Holy Spirit, and then follows the church. Indeed, having shown that the Spirit is the source and giver of all holiness, we now confess that it is He who has endowed the church with holiness. The church is, in a phrase used by the fathers, the place where the Spirit flourishes. And I just want to emphasize how much I agree with this, and I would have when I was a Baptist as well. This is where we have to begin our study of Catholic ecclesiology, 
Because when every single Sunday in Mass, when we all stand and we recite together the Nicene Creed's article on the church, that is, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we are not talking about traits that the church possesses in her own right. We're talking about endowments. We're talking about gifts. We're talking about, just as you just said, Matt, about regarding the Virgin Mary, we're talking about endowments that Jesus, the head of his church, and the Holy Spirit has given to the church. In fact, the Holy Spirit is often referred to as the soul of the church. And paragraph 750 makes this explicit. To believe that the church is holy and Catholic and that she is one and apostolic, as the Nicene Creed adds, is, inescape, is, is inseparable from belief in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, attri we attribute clearly to God's goodness all the gifts he has bestowed on his church. Mm -hmm. This can be a, a really good place, Ken, to talk about something I've I've heard a lot since I've become Catholic, getting into conversations with people mm -hmm. about what it means to be Catholic and the Catholic Church. And I don't know how much you guys have heard this, but sometimes people will say, you Catholics just can't stop talking about the Catholic Church. It's like all you ever talk about, you, mm -hmm. you know, church, church, church. And we, we on the other hand, we talk about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> and this goes back to the you know, the, the the reflex I think that I had before I was Catholic, which is to try to put an or in between everything instead of an and in between mm -hmm. things that go together. What the catechism is saying here is that the church is what God has done. It is, in a sense, mm -hmm. um, his workmanship, as the book of Ephesians says. We are his workmanship, you know, his great masterpiece. So it's not that we have these virtues in ourselves. These are, as you said, endowments. They're the, 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 the church is the work of the Lord in the world. And that's, that's where the and goes. It's God and his church, Jesus and yeah. his, his body and his bride. And that's why I think it's so good that the catechism chose to begin here, just to state this boldly and to state it, you know, to, to, to assert it explicitly that, that the church mm -hmm. has nothing of her own. It's all the work mm -hmm. of Christ. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. This is how the whole topic is introduced. But at this point now, what the catechism does is it begins to discuss the church in God's plan. Um, and this is a subject that we're going to be on for a couple of weeks. And so, Kenny, why don't, why don't you launch this here? Because it talks about the names of the church, and then we, we'll be talking about the images of the church, biblical images. So why don't you start sure. us by talking about the names of the church? Yeah, and again, I'm I'm looking, as you said, Ken, at uh, at the Catechism specifically, uh, paragraphs seven fifty one and seven fifty two, and I'll just read a little bit of of this. And of, mm -hmm. if you listen to the last episode, you'll hear a little bit of repeat here. Uh, last week we talked in our Catholic terminology section on um, the word ecclesia. So let me read though a little bit from paragraph seven fifty one and make some comments. It says. The word church, Latin ecclesia, from the Greek ekkalein, to call out of, means a convocation or an assembly. It designates the assemblies of the people, usually for a religious purpose. Now, we said last time uh, that the word doesn't always have religious connotations, but in Scripture, the word is is adapted and adopted to the whole people of God mm -hmm. who are gathered for a particular purpose. 
And these two words that make up sort of the uh, the main chunk of uh, of the word or the, or the word as a, as a whole, ek kaleo, uh, out of called, called out of. But the idea there isn't just called out of something. Rather, it's it's called away from something to something. And the two, uh, what is the church called to? The church is called to the Lord and to the business of the Lord, to the mm-hmm. to what the Lord is doing in the world. This is going to be really important when we start talking about body of Christ and the mission of the church and what God is doing in the world. So it says then, um, ecclesia is used frequently in the Greek Old Testament for the assembly of the chosen people before God, above all, uh, for their assembly on Mount Sinai, where Israel received the law and was established by God as his holy people. So there you see the called out of, out of Egypt, out of the world, out away from the pagan nations, to the Lord, to mm-hmm. his way, to his law, to his way of being human in the world together as a community. Let's see, where did I end up? Okay, by calling itself church, the first community of Christian believers recognized itself as heir to that assembly. In the church, God is calling together his people from all the ends of the earth. Let's pause there. and, And again, the church doesn't just take this word to itself. Rather, it takes to itself the word that that Jesus ascribes to what he's doing. I will build my church. So the church says, aha, that's us. What's he doing? He's taking us out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, out of darkness, into light, out of a wayward and lost life, into his kingdom, into his enterprise, and into his, his business, as it were. And he calls us into that together. I'll just say a real quick word here about um, my Catholic ecclesiology then is impacted by this word as I set it next to a rather individualistic ecclesiology that I had before, kind of a me and Jesus ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. I even heard people say, and maybe I said when I, when I wasn't Catholic, well, I'm the church. I am, that's me and Jesus, I'm the church. Well, there's no such thing, you know, in Scripture. I am not the church. The church is not an I proposition. It's God calling his whole people together. So it's a we. Then this last idea here, the equivalent Greek term, uh, kuriake, from which the English word church and the German word uh, kirke, I hope I'm saying that right, are derived, means what belongs to the Lord. You can find that word used, for instance, in uh, 1 Corinthians, where it talks about the Lord's Supper. It's it's his. It's what belongs to him. So the church, the name church, means that there is this entire people called away from something to something and called to be together. And at the end of the day, it's the people who belong to the Lord. Let me pause right there for anything you, you guys might want to say, Matt. Yeah, I, just a, a couple of things quickly. First of all, I like the idea of of bringing in this this notion of Kirk and Kirka or whatever, because it means you know a lot of people don't probably, yeah. probably realize that Captain Kirk's last name is Church. Uh, maybe you've even heard of if you've got Scottish <laughs> oh, the heritage, Kirka. the idea of the Kirkin of the Tartans, right? Where you take your uh, mm-hmm. your flannels and go get them blessed, as it were. But um, there, there's there's so much in here. Um, one thing that that I think is important is this line where it says, 
By calling itself church, the first community of Christian mm-hmm. believers recognized itself as heir to that assembly. Now, that might seem like just a, a gloss over line, but it's a line that that I think illustrates something very different than what we have, would have thought of as church. Like, we might have, like, smiled and nodded at this, but we wouldn't have thought about it the way that the Catholic Church thinks about it. Maybe you would have. I, I certainly would not, though. Um, the idea that we as church are doing our best to imitate what we see in the scriptures. Um, the Catholic Church says, no, we are actually the heirs to the model set out in that Davidic covenant. And so just like there was a line of succession unbroken, despite all the dumb things that people did in that line, God held to his promise. And as Ken, you illustrate all the time in our series, the the fulfillment is always greater than the foreshadowing. So if we are heirs to that promise, then whatever Christ set into motion by saying that he was founding a church is something that is more robust and more bolstered uh, than even the kingship of Israel, which survived exiles and betrayals and all kinds of crazy stuff. That idea of being heirs, uh, the believers considering themselves as heirs to that line that survived the rise and fall of empires, is something that Catholics take on in a very robust way. Actually, Orthodox take this on as well. Anybody with that apostolic sort of ecclesiology. Uh, but with that, that kind of goes back to something that, Ken, you and I talked about in episodes 45 through 61. We did this whole thing on Christian authority and what it looks like. Uh, and going back just a couple paragraphs, that idea, like, why does that work? Why can we say that, why do we latch onto this airship uh, and this promise of of, of God sustaining and, and fulfilling and, and, and trusting these things to us and that he's going to help us do that? Uh, when you talk about something like papal infa- infallibility, that's not so much about infallibility of a guy as it is about the papacy. And it's not so much about the papacy as it is about the church. And it's not so much about the church as it is about the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> so right. all these things kind of go back to that original concept that kicks <clears throat> off this point. The only reason that you can say that you're an heir is not because you chose to be born into a specific situation, but because you were gifted with birth into a thing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I think that that idea of heirship, uh, as opposed to, I don't know, starting up a corporation that is going to reflect the values of these people we admire, mm-hmm. those are two very different kinds of concepts. And I think, um, well, depending on, on who you ask, you might come up with a, a range of ideas mm-hmm. of what it means to be heirs to that promise. But the Catholic Church takes it very, like, concretely serious. Mm-hmm. You know, when you mentioned Captain Kirk as being Captain Church, and then you mentioned an airship. I thought you were still on the Captain Kirk kind of, you know, line it's of thought there. It's not an airship, it's a spaceship. Oh, okay. okay, the only thing I want to no add... no air in or, space, Ken. Yeah, or the only thing I want to emphasize here is that in your description, Kenny, so far, the, the meaning of the of the Greek word ekklesia, the meaning of the Latin term, the meaning of the, uh, the English terms, in fact, um, the focus is on the church as the people of God, which is going to come out exactly. in the next paragraph you're looking at, the emphasis so far has been on the assembly that is the called out people, the people of God. And this is something very important to the Vatican II documents and to what the catechism teaches. But you go ahead then with the next paragraph. That's all I want to add. Yeah, the next paragraph um, gets us into the, the specifics of, okay, well, what what is what is it, previous paragraph, what does it or she, as we'll see, do? And in paragraph 752, we read this. In Christian usage, the word church designates the liturgical assembly, but also the local community or the whole universal community of believers. 
these three meanings are inseparable. Well, let's the catechism wants us to take those uh, in in reverse. And so here here's how it it works. It says the church is the people that God gathers in the whole world. Then watch this. She exists in local communities and is made real as a liturgical above all eucharistic assembly. Here we go again. She draws her life from the word and the body of Christ and so herself becomes Christ's body. So there's two big ideas that I want to unpack here, and then I'll toss it to you guys. First is how the church becomes Christ's body. And the catechism says, essentially, by word and sacrament, by taking in God's word and by taking in the body of Christ in the Eucharist. And second, the identity of the church in becoming Christ's body is that she becomes her. So the catechism is using this she and her language, which is really Paul's ecclesiology in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. He says, this is a profound mystery. And he's been talking about how a husband loves his wife and how a wife responds to her husband. And there's head and there's body and there's this mutuality of connectedness and submission and love and cleansing and all the things that go on and the, the beautification uh, uh, of each's life. And he says, now this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, remember, guys, I said at the beginning that I had theological placeholders <laughs> before I was Catholic. For instance, the term bride of Christ. I would have used that, that the church is the bride of Christ. I would have said that. My Catholic ecclesiology puts that in there and fills it out for me. Uh, the term that I heard from um, Pope, Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, in his book on Catholic ecclesiology or Catholic theology, says this is nuptial language. The way that the, the New Testament talks about the church is nuptial or marriage language, the language of being one flesh with Jesus. And that's done by receiving the word of the Lord and by receiving the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist. This gathered people becomes one flesh, the catechism says, mm -hmm. universally. That is, I join in one flesh the entire universal people of God, both in heaven and on earth. I become united to Jesus and to all of them when I hear the word and I receive the Eucharist. But then locally, when I gather together with those believers in my locale, and then liturgically, when we do the work of the Lord together in our gathering, when we celebrate the Mass and we celebrate the Eucharist, we become one with Christ in those places and in those ways. So that the church is not, like you said, Matt, a corporation. It's not an impersonal institution like a 501c3 nonprofit. Rather, her institution is a nuptial relationship with Jesus, in which she mm -hmm. is his one flesh partner, covenant partner in the world. She becomes a full participant in the life and vocation of her head, of her husband. This goes all the way back to, to Genesis, where um, God says it's not good for man to be alone. I'll find a suitable helper for him. Mm -hmm. 
the New Testament wants us to see the church mm-hmm. as the suitable helper, the one flesh covenant partner of Jesus himself in the world. And I'll say a final thought and then toss it to you guys. This paragraph is why, uh, or one reason why at least, we as Catholics are able to use language about what the church is doing in the world in ways that may in some traditions only be used for what Jesus is doing in the world. Like we, well, that Jesus does that. You Catholics say the church does it. Well, it's because we are his one flesh covenant partner in the world. We are nuptially related to him in, in this way. We are his body in the world. So where we are, Jesus is, and where Jesus is, we are. I'll just pause right there. So I don't want to get us out into the weeds, but the other thing by regarding the church as the bride, uh, we also get into this idea of the church as a mother uh, because this is a fruitful relationship. And mm-hmm. uh, the the concept of, I mean, this this goes back into some, some Mary stuff here too, but receiving the mm-hmm. word, being a guardian protector of the word, right? Uh, we are in the womb of the church, right? Mm-hmm. This is a this is a big image, and actually, it's an image that Paul even uses. And there's some when you start to see this picture of what the church is and the robustness of this ecclesiology. Uh, there are things that I used to read that I thought were kind of important and cool, but now I read them, and they just have a whole different flavor to them. But the one that was immediately coming to mind was Saint Paul addressing the Corinthians, and there's this issue of some people saying that they were. You know, they're bragging that they're baptized by Paul or Apollos or Peter, and there's this issue of, of, of divisions in the church based on whatever. And Paul's trying to get them to say, to see, no, you were, we're all in the same body of Christ. But he says this in sort of an interesting way. In chapter 3, he says, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. He's using kind of like a language of, like a maternal Maternal language, like he's nursing he's language. Yeah. Why would why would Paul be giving somebody? Paul's a dude, right? He's thinking kind of in terms of, of on behalf of the church, right? He's speaking on behalf mm-hmm. of the church, on behalf of Christ, and so uh, he goes on right there, right after that. You may recall the image that he says that he neither he knew he plants or he who waters does anything. It is God who makes it grow. So even with that, even as Paul's giving this sort of maternal image to the church, he's saying he's not saying even though the mom, you know, feeds the baby or whatever, it's God who, you know, even though you plant the seed, even though, you know, not to get into too much nuptial imagery, but even though the seed comes from the <laughs> husband, right, and the mother carries the child, right, God makes the whole thing grow. Uh, I mean, there's right. there's just images that, that just resonate so much more deeply once you have this picture of of marriage and motherhood in relation to the church, at least for me. Yeah, the only thing I want to throw in, I'm going to play devil's advocate slightly, and that is that, yeah, apart from the um, the mother image, the church as mother, and apart from the connections to Mary, which we'll be coming to when we come to them, um, I could have said everything you were saying, Kenny, as a Baptist. I would say that I, I had a full-blown view. Wait, no, apart from one other thing, that is, receiving the body and blood of Christ and being physically one in that sense. Yeah, I wouldn't have said that either. But I definitely would have spoken 
in the, all the same terms about uh, about being the bride of Jesus Christ, being his yes. body, being organically yes. connected to him, his life coursing through the veins of the church, everything the church doing, doing because of the spirit and because of Christ in her. Um, I, I would have said all the same things, and I just want to emphasize yeah. that before yeah, we move I, on. I, I, I agree. I agree, Ken. I'll, pa- I'll pass it back to you here in a sec, but I agree. Like That was terminology that I used. I preached mm-hmm. through these books of the Bible that we're reading right now, verse by verse, and right. tried to unpack it. What I didn't have is Eucharistic theology for yeah. one thing. You know, this, yeah. I, I just I didn't connect the dots on how the Eucharist binds us together with Christ. Yeah, uh, same in here. the same way that I do. Uh, you know, as a Catholic. No, well, and same here. I, I didn't like have the, the idea the, of a that's... visible church, right? I mean, really, what it is is well, I'm good on this, but but we still haven't given the full explanation of what we mean by church. Like, so far, talking about what the church is and how it functions, I think that most mm-hmm. Protestants, even with an invisible church ecclesiology, could get on with most of this. Of course, sure. yeah. because yeah. by church, so many of us, what we really meant was Christians, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and so so that would be yeah. you know, kind of the distinction. And that, that the, the catechism hasn't gotten, hasn't ramped yeah. it up past us quite yet. <laughs> but, but, but that's why I think it's important to follow along with what the catechism is saying, because this is what it's saying at this it's point. building the case. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. I would have thought of the spirit, Christ within us, the hope of glory. I would have thought of the spirit indwelling us. I would have thought of the word of God indwelling us and Christ sure. working through us, but not the Eucharistic part. Okay, look, let's move forward though, because after the names of the church are discussed, what the catechism does is go on to dis, to dis, to talk about some of the images that are used in scripture to de, to describe the church and and I think we well we're going to need to try to kind of walk through these without going off too far on each one of them let's let the images speak okay uh, this this is in paragraph 753 it begins where we read this from the catechism in scripture we find a host of interrelated images and figures through which Revelation speaks of the inexhaustible mystery of the church. So we're moving from names for the church to images, and specifically scriptural images. The images taken from the Old Testament are variations on a profound theme, the people of God, which ties us right back to Ecclesia. In the New Testament, all these images find a new center because Christ has become the head of his people, which henceforth is his body. Okay, Let's move on to the first one then, because the Catechism discusses four images, possibly you could say five, I, I think. Okay. First, we find in Scripture the church described as a flock of sheep, with Jesus as the good shepherd who watches over his sheep, who leads them, who feeds them, who cares for them, and who lays down his life for them. Okay. Now, this is an image that we find in both the Old Testament and the New For instance, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11, we read, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules with him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So for those who think that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and power and sovereignty and all that, and only Jesus comes along meek and mild, just keep this passage in mind. God is described here as one who will gently lead those who are with young, will carry his sheep in his bosom. 
And Jesus picks up on this exactly in the New Testament, especially I'm referring to the 10th chapter of John, that classic passage. That's where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. They know me. My sheep hear my voice and they respond to me. I lay down my life for the sheep. All the same kinds of images come through. Jesus saying, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must also bring them so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. I'm, I'm, I'm quoting phrases from this very long passage in John chapter 10. The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it. And, and so here's the question for you guys. What does this image of the church as a sheepfold communicate to you? I think it communicates something that I would have heard communicated in my congregations growing up, right? The idea, I mean, even that we use the word pastor to refer to yeah. the person up front uh, showed that we kind of got that image uh, and that we we saw um, a shepherding role. I mean, and we even referred to discipleship very often as shepherding, <laughs> right, in, uh, in right, mentoring right. relationships. So, I mean, I think this is another another case of, of an image that that most Christians, even those who have an invisible church ecclesiology, can very much get along with. Because if a pastor feels called to be a pastor, you know, he's thinking of himself in that shepherd t terminology. I, I don't know of anybody in my entire Protestant world who ever, you know, refer to themselves as not being a pastor. I feel like it always came up when it when it came to someone right, who right. felt called to 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 pastor a congregation. Mm -hmm. Well, Kenny, what is this image? What does this image communicate to you about the nature of the church? Yeah, I started using a phrase even before I was Catholic, and and of course now I I use it all the time. And the the Catechism kind of gives us the image for it when it says, uh, in the New Testament, all these images find a new center because Christ has become the head of this people. So one of the phrases that I would use even before I was Catholic is the church is the people gathered around the lordship of Jesus, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which you know conjures images in your mind. And one of the most beautiful right here in scripture is the image of a shepherd standing in the midst of a flock of sheep. And he's leading them and he's guiding them and he's feeding them and he's protecting them. And he, you know, yeah. all the things that the, that are written in the 23rd chapter of Psalms, for instance. Um, and so, so this image of the church as the sheep, you know, mm -hmm. under, uh, Jesus, um, the good shepherd, of course, I, I see that, you know, in living color now as a, as a Catholic follower of Jesus. And the emphasis again is on the people, the church as a people then who follow Jesus wherever he goes, mm -hmm. who take up their cross, who, who, do, who refuse to hear the voice of a hireling, but only listen to the voice of Jesus and go where he goes. And, and then on the other side about Jesus' love and care. These are the images, I mean, these are the realities that I think are, are um are uh, set set forth in this particular image, okay? And then there's a second image though that the Catechism talks about, and that is the image to describe uh, of the church as a vine, or as an olive tree, or as a cultivated field. Here's what paragraph seven fifty five says: the church is a cultivated field, the tillage of God. On that land, the ancient olive tree grows whose holy roots were the prophets and in which the reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles has been brought about and will be brought about again. That land, like a choice vineyard, has been planted by the heavenly cultivator. 
Yet the true vine is Christ who gives life and fruitfulness to its branches, that is, to us, who through the church remain in Christ, without whom we can do nothing. And of course, the primary image that just jumps out from the New Testament when we read this passage is John chapter 15, where Jesus said to his disciples, and again, it's a rather lengthy passage, but I'll just, you know, kind of evoke it, um, where Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, when I think about this image then of the church as a vineyard, an olive tree, or a um, or, or, or land, a field, you know, what this communicates is the idea of life, Christ's life. Again, I mean, as we began in this, this episode, the life of the Holy Spirit, the life of God infused into the people of God, working in them, bearing fruit in and through God's people. So if the, if the shepherding illustration and the flock of sheep shows us as, as Christ's people, Christ's Christ's dumb people, you know, walking around mm-hmm. who need a shepherd to lead us every every step of the way. This image speaks to us of the fact that his divine life courses through us, through our veins, through the church. That's what this um, image portrays to me. What about you two on this one? Man, yeah, I got so much that I wish I could say on this. Uh, Kenny, do you want to go first? Well, I'll just say w- one thing, because there's a thousand things you can say, but this is an important point. I think with the last image of of sheep and shepherd, but now here we have vine and branches. And in in both cases, there's the idea of being lost or cut off or wandering away, those kinds of things. And I think as as Catholic Christians, we we realize this as a reality, as a part of the challenge of being the church. And that is that um, a sheep can wander, can get away, you know, from the shepherd. And um, here in this second image, Jesus is saying, abide in me and remain in me. And this is, mm-hmm. this is language of, of active participation in the life of Jesus rather than some passive status that I have, you know, by virtue of, of, you know, saying I'm a Christian. It's work yeah. <laughs> to be part of the church. I have to remain in Jesus. I have to abide in Jesus. So I might say, well, I've accepted Jesus into my heart, you know. Well, now am I living like Jesus is, mm-hmm. you know, is Lord of my life? Am I live? Am I abiding in Jesus? Am I staying close to Him who is my life? And Jesus warns us, says, if I don't do that, then you know, without Him, I can do nothing. I'll be cut off. I'll be lost. So, um, being part of the church is a very active. Um, part of our faith. That's Yeah, in fact, before before Matt presents his idea, I'm just thinking in that very same passage, John 15, if you read on a couple of verses further, you find Jesus saying, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. So yeah, participation, right. things to do. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, there's all that, but there's also when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, I think uh, that at various points in my pre-Catholic life, depending on my mood towards what other Christians were doing and how they were being, I might have subconsciously read this in a different, I I might have imputed a different person to the verb here, right? Um, or, Or to the, well, to the subject of the verb. So you are the branches. I would have said you singular, right? Uh, you know, this is, 
Christ is the vine and I am, I'm all the branches off of that vine, right? Because there's this idea that, you know, it's me and Jesus sometimes, uh, Kenny. And I didn't always think like that all the time, but there were times that I did. I felt that way that, you know, these people who were doing these other things over there, they were on a different vine altogether as far as I was concerned sometimes. Uh, but it's clear that there are branches on this vine that are doing well and branches on this vine that are doing poorly, but somehow they're all still connected to the vine. And this really kind of brings me back at least to the idea of the children of Israel wandering in the desert. We just did a whole big series on what a big, you know, metaphor that is for the Christian life. And there were good and bad branches on that vine that grew and sprung forth from Egypt. And some of them got cut off along the way and burned up and, you know, sucked up my yeah. holes in the ground and, and that sort of thing. But it's clear that you had to be, whatever else is going on, you had to stay in that group that was walking mm -hmm. together. You could not yeah. be like, hey, man, these people are walking too slow. God already said that we got to have this land. So how about you and me go out in the middle of the night and see how far we can get? That would be the end of those dudes, <laughs> right? That would yeah. be the end. You would have to be in the people of God, the assembled people of God. You would have to be yes, in the vine if you want to be part of the life of, of that promise. Yeah, right now we're, you know, in the liturgical year, as of the time of this recording, we're reading through some of the gospel parables. And uh, we just, um, maybe a week ago, we went through the parable of, you know, the, the, uh, the, the sower and the seeds and, you know, the, the wheat and the tares. And then this last week we heard the parable of, um, the pearls in the field. And then this parable that comes right out after it is the kingdom of heaven is like a big dragnet that goes into the ocean and scoops everything up. And then at the end of the age, everything's sorted out. And I think in that way, you know, talking to what you just said, Matt, that the church kind of looks like a mixed bag of stuff, a mixed net full of things that have all been caught up together and the Lord will sort it all out. Our job, as uh, you know, the uh, as the text says that Ken just read, is to remain in Him, to abide in Him, mm -hmm. you know, to obey and to keep His commandments and to stay in His life. And that's mm -hmm. the that is the preoccupation that we have as the people of God, abiding in Jesus as the church. Okay, Amen to that. Okay, so so our first image then was that of the sheep and the shepherd. The second image presented in the catechism here is that of the vine and the branches. And then uh, it moves on to give us a third image, and that is the church is described. And, and again, these are scriptural images that the catechism is presenting. It's described as a building, uh, specifically as the new covenant temple of God. Um, now, in the second chapter of St. Peter's first epistle, Peter tells us that built upon that living stone, rejected by men, but God's, but in God's sight, chosen and precious, re reference to Jesus Christ himself. Peter says, we are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. In fact, the church, the catechism goes on to insist, is not only the new covenant temple of God, and I'm, I'm going to read it in just a second, but the new covenant city of God, the city of Jerusalem. The church is God's temple. The church is the city of God, the fulfillment of that image of, of Jerusalem. Paragraph 756, often too, the church is called the building of God. The Lord compared himself to the stone which the builders rejected, but which was made into the cornerstone. On this foundation, the church is built by the apostles, and from the church, and from it, 
the church receives solidity and unity. This edifice has many names to describe it, the house of God, in which his family dwells, the household of God in the spirit, the dwelling place of God among men, and especially the holy temple. Mm-hmm. This temple symbolized in places of worship built out of stone, okay, symbolized in places of worship built out of stone, is praised by the fathers, the early church fathers, and not without reason, is compared in the liturgy to the holy city, the new Jerusalem, as living stones we here on earth are built into it. As living stones we are built into it. It is this holy city that is seen by John. There's so much here. I'm just going, my head. My head's kind of exploding as I read, but mm-hmm. it is this holy city that is seen by John as it comes down out of heaven from God when the world is made anew. And he's referring to the last chapter of the Revelation, the apocalypse. It is this holy city that is seen by John coming down out of heaven, and then quoting here, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And we're going to come to the bride adorned in the next image, but um, here we're focusing on the household, mm-hmm. the dwelling place of God. And I'll throw it to you, men, before I make my comment. So don't go off on dispensationalism because I'm going to talk about that for a second myself, all right? But so what do you think about, like, what comes to your mind then when you ponder this image of the church as God's dwelling place or God's temple? So I sometimes uh, will, for fun, view other, you know, online services or even sometimes attend in person other other churches, other other congregations, um, you know, because I, you know, I, I like praying with my fellow believers, even if we don't have the, the sacraments in common. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember hearing a pastor recently who was given a sermon, and it was his whole text was almost the entire narrative arc of the Book of Acts. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he kind of told the story of the whole Book of Acts, <laughs> and it was in relation to kind of their own community and uh, what they were doing and what they were trying to figure out and how to be, you know, because. You know, they, they'd been around for a while and maybe they didn't have all the energy that they had at the beginning and they've had big, you know, times and small times and, and going back and looking at that book of Acts and just seeing like, what do those guys do? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe that would be a good model for, for what we should be doing, right? We should be doing what they were doing. And I thought, man, that's a great message. But what, what we think of in the Catholic church is a different image. So what we think of is not not we should be doing what they were doing, but rather we are them. <laughs> like exactly. that is us. Them is us. Right. 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 We're like one more brick on top of the pile. Like that's, yeah. that's kind of how the, how it works. It's not yeah. like that's a good model. We should use that model for our right. company. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's, yeah. It's, it's like yeah, we're part of that. I'm like a, all in all, I am another brick in the wall. Of that, and Paul Paul uses the right. same yeah. exact image, right, in Ephesians chapter two, uh, which is again one of the most contentious, uh, you know, passages in all of Scripture when it comes to the divisions between Protestants and Catholics. But Paul's ecclesiology is robust. He says that same thing, you know, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. I mean, it's all there. It's all there in Mm -hmm. Paul. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's so good, Matt. I, I like it. There's a Catholic and in there, Jesus and the apostles, you know, so... But what, here's what I hear, guys. This little piece that you just read, Ken, that the one of the images for the church is that it is a temple. This is the thing that really helped me with another point of Catholic theology, and that is the intercession of the saints and the communion of the saints. And now I have sort of wrapping around that whole uh, theological and practical aspect of Catholicism— Temple ecclesiology, if you will, the temple ecclesiology of the New Testament uh, outlined here in the Catechism that says, look, the church is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit and is the body of Christ. Well, where is the where's the body of Christ? I like to ask people, where is the body of Christ? Well, it, 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 you know, the body of Christ ascended into heaven. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says that the church is also the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. So somehow the body of Christ is the temple in which all the people of God meet together. Well, where are they? Well, they are in heaven and on earth, you know? Mm -hmm. So somehow, because of this temple theology, this temple ecclesiology, this theology of the communion of saints, being able to help each other through their intercession, for instance, is possible, not because of some medium, you know, who who uh, pulls both sides together, but because of the mediation of the Holy Spirit in the temple, which is the body of Christ, which is the church that can minister to itself and together in the world. And so temple theology, temple ecclesiology, plugged in this theology of the intercession of the saints for me, like put it on That's good. steroids. Yeah. 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 If I can add something <laughs> yeah. to that real quick. I mean, it's, when when this if the holy spirit is holding this whole building together and we're just rocks being piled on top that's a very different kind of ecclesiology than than sometimes people kind of default to which is you know we build a castle and it sank into the swamp and then we built this other castle and it sank into the swamp <laughs> right and we built this other castle and it sank into the swamp <laughs> then we built this other castle and it burned down and fell over and sank into the swamp and then we built this castle which you know we have today right because that's kind of what you sort of end up with uh, if you're if you're doing that kind of restart ecclesiology or that modeling off of it ecclesiology, but if you are part of that same building, right, right. then the people who died are not like going to a different church now. <laughs> you know, the people who exactly. are dead are not, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, they're not like confined to a book somewhere, right? They're living exactly. stones, but they have, they're actually in a more perfect union. Uh, they are more perfectly what it means to be church than even we are. And going back, yes, going back to what we talked about toward the beginning of this episode, guys, then our Eucharistic theology with our body of Christ theology and our temple theology and our heaven and earth theology, it all helps you to see why, for instance, then at the Eucharist, when we celebrate the Eucharist, we are in communion with Jesus and the whole right, body right. of Christ around the world right. and in heaven and on earth. Right, that right. is the centerpiece of all of it. So we like all of these theologies, they just come crashing in and, and overlapping on each other. And it's just a, such a wonderful, wonderful thing. But temple theology, guys, was one of the, the big things for me. Like I finally found a place to land. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to make a comment. I'll just add a comment. The things you're you're both saying are very, very good. I want to add a, a comment because this is where Catholic ecclesiology 
Catholic eschatology differs from a great deal of Protestant evangelicalism, at least especially, I would say, in America. Now, it wasn't the case for me. Um, I had come to a view that was very much similar to Catholic, uh, Catholic view on this issue, I mean, on this particular issue. But based on Old Testament prophecies, especially the, the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, um, Modern evangelical Protestants in America, uh, to a great extent, is wed to this idea, this dispensational idea, that a that a literal rebuilt temple in the city of Jerusalem is what we are looking forward to. In fact, on right. one trip to Israel, one trip to Israel, I visited the, this organization near the Temple Mount, where uh, these uh, people, uh, a lot of them evangelical, mainly evangelical Christians, where they are actually making all of the utensils, the pans and the sensors and all the things that will be needed right. in the temple. And they're weaving the clothing, you know, the the linen clothing that the Levites would wear and all that, because they're looking forward to a time when the uh, when the Dome of the Rock will be blown out of there and the temple will be rebuilt and the Levitical sacrifices will start up again. And they're going to be offering, you know, lambs and goats morning and evening, you know, uh, sacrifices again and again and again. Now, these evangelicals, I, I know many of them, um, understand that in the New Testament, the church is described as God's temple. They understand that. They've read First Peter chapter 2, and they know that we're described as living stones being built up. They've read the passage, Matthew, you just read from Ephesians chapter 2. They know about what Paul said about us being built upon the foundation of the Christ Jesus, the cornerstone being built up into a structure. They know all this, but they reply in this way. They say, yeah, that stuff's in the New Testament, but this is just a spiritual application being made to the church. The church is not the real fulfillment of these prophecies. The real fulfillment is going to come Later on, I see you kind of grinning, Kenny. I'm looking at you right now. The the real fulfillment that Ezekiel talked about, that is the prophecy of Ezekiel 40 through 48, is going to come when a literal temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount after the church has been raptured away. In this temple, there will be the Jewish priests and all and all the rest will happen again. Okay, the Catholic, I just want to make a comment here. We could have a whole series on this subject, and I think we will have a series on eschatology at one point. But the Catholic understanding is just very different. While it's mm -hmm. true that the people of Israel at the time of Jesus, it's true that they were looking forward to a literal fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Jesus and the apostles make it so clear in the New Testament writings that the fulfillment has come, and the fulfillment Amen. has simply come in a way that was unexpected. When Jesus was raised from the dead, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, when Jesus pours out his spirit into the church, and he begins to build a temple not made with human hands, a temple in which God will dwell forever and forever, this is the real fulfillment, okay? I mean, the, this is the true fulfillment of those prophecies, not, not just a spiritual application, and what I'm saying here is, is is simply this: the Catholic understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New is just very very different than what is common among Protestant evangelicals, and again, especially in America, because this theology is not as prevalent in other places in the world. We, as Catholics, we see the New Testament as fulfilling the Old. We see the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Covenant as type, as shadow 
and the New Testament church as the fulfillment of those types and shadows. So that in a serious, in a literal way, the church is God's temple being built by living stones. And not only that, the church is the eternal city of God. The church is the new Jerusalem. The church is what John saw coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband. Anything you'd like to add to this? I'll add just one quick thing, and that is that there's a word that we've not really used or a phrase that we've used, uh, not used quite in this way just yet, and that's the idea of the church is the kingdom of God on earth. I would not have said that as an evangelical Protestant, but I believe it fully mm-hmm. now as a Christian in the Catholic tradition. The, the Catholic Church talks about being the kingdom of God. Uh, a lot of people who go th- through some of the other dispensational theologies that you mentioned, Ken, and even some people who don't, would say that mm-hmm. the kingdom of God is something that has not yet come. Um, right. Uh, we would say, well, yes and no, <laughs> right? It is a, right. It is a both and. Um, but they would, you know, there are sometimes hopes that some government will be the space in which the kingdom of God can flourish, you know, like Israel or the United States or, mm-hmm. or some other reality. But when I read about the kingdom of God, if I understand that the kingdom of God on earth is the church, and I see that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts small from the time of Christ, but grows until all the birds of the air can nest in its branches. Or if I see that the kingdom of God is like a net cast in in Jesus's day, and at the end of the age, down the road, the fish will be sorted, or that the wheat and the weeds will grow up together until the end of the age. That doesn't sound to me like an 18th century regional reform movement in the United States, right? That had a that sort of peaked in the 1950s and is now still kind of hanging on. That sounds to me like the Catholic Church, right? The Catholic Church sounds like this thing that started small has continued, and the whole world, wherever you go, you're within the shot of a Catholic Church. It sounds to me more like, hey, these people seem to have survived a whole lot of tears and bad fish, <laughs> right? And there's, it yeah. just feels more like the kingdom of God. And in that way, you know, Matt and Ken, our ecclesiology isn't kind of seeing the church as a, a little parentheses between two bigger ideas, you know, real temple in the Old Testament, Jesus in the middle, real temple, you know, in the, in the, like, re, like real temple is a temple made out of, you know, brick and mortar. Uh, and the church is just a spiritual thing in the middle. The New Testament, as you said, Ken, because Jesus does it, relocates the temple in the body of Jesus and relocates all that happens in the temple in the body of Jesus. And as you're saying, our Catholic ecclesiology, Um, points to the filling up to the full of those promises in the Old Testament about a last day temple in the body of Christ. Jesus said his body was the temple. And so we, you know, as Catholic, as Catholic Christians, that's what we believe. This is, this is the filling up to the full or the fulfillment of all those promises about where God is going to meet with his people, which is really what a temple is for. Where, where's God going to meet with his people? The New Testament says, in the body of Jesus. <laughs> well, we got one more image, and it's one that we've kind of touched on mm-hmm. a little bit already. Actually, we've touched on quite a bit nice. already, but Ken, if you could sort of summarize it as we close out here. Uh, the final image is that of a bride, which we've mentioned, as you said, a couple of times already. That's in paragraph 757, where we read, the church further, which is called that Jerusalem which is above, and our mother is described as the spotless spouse of the spotless lamb. It is she whom Christ loved and for whom he delivered himself up that he might sanctify her. This is all referencing back to Ephesians chapter two. 
It is she whom he unites to himself by an unbreakable alliance and whom he constantly nourishes and cherishes. So do you have anything else you want to say about how this, about what this image communicates to you? I mean, I think we pretty well covered it. This is, if we, if we spoiled any topic through the course of this episode, we spoiled this one over and over again through the course of it. Okay. Here's something that I, that came to me as I was reading this section and thinking about it, you guys. And that's this, notice this, notice that with all the images chosen in this opening section of the catechism's teaching on the church, the images used to describe the church, notice that the focus is that the focus has not been on the outward structure or form of the church, but rather the focus has been on what Lumen Gentium, um, that is Vatican II's dogmatic constitution on the church, what it refers to as, quote, the inner nature of the church. The church's inner nature. Let me expand on that just a bit. Think, think about it like this. If the image of the shepherd and his sheep speaks to us of God's people, God's people who hear the voice of the shepherd, who follow him wherever he leads, and him as the shepherd who loves and lays down his life for his sheep. If the image of the church as a vine, an olive tree as a cultivated field, if this speaks of, uh, of the life of Jesus that is in God's people, producing fruit in our lives, if the image of the church as a temple speaks of the church as a place where God dwells, where God is worshipped, and that is in, in and among his people, the image of the church as Christ's bride speaks of his love um, for, he, for his people, and it speaks of, just as the Catechism says, the unbreakable bond and union that exists between Christ and the church. These are all images. This is what kind of strikes me, is that these are all images of the inner nature of the church. Um, in a sense, these images are images of what I would have described when I was a Baptist as the invisible church. I would have, I would have thought of the church as the as comprised of all those throughout the world and time that have been born of the Spirit through baptism, brought into living union with Christ, he the head, the church as the body. And I would have talked about the church in terms of its inner nature, just like these images. And I don't know about the two of you, but I kind of suspect something. I suspect that by starting the discussion of the church in this way, rather than by talking about the hierarchical structure of the church, the authority of bishops, the authority of the Bishop of Rome, and so forth— I suspect that the Council Fathers of Vatican II were wanting to consciously reach out to the Eastern churches and to Protestants as well by approaching it in this way. And to say, in, in some sense, let us begin by saying how much we agree, yes. and, and, or that we agree with so much of what you believe about the church in terms of her inner nature. And I hear you already, Kenny, saying yes to that. That, that's what I think is going on here in the passage by focusing on the inner nature of the church, where I think that as a Baptist, I mean, it, it's true that you, you two have expanded on this and brought in Mary and, and, and some, some things that really fill out these images, but I definitely could have said amen to all these images as a Baptist. Yeah, and I, and, and I, and I, think, I think that's what the yeah, church was doing. That's such a good point, Ken, and it uh, really kind of speaks to how we, even as an apostolate, want to dialogue with people about this journey that we are on. And the first thing that we have to do is we have to find those points of overlap where we, we, re, we really mm-hmm. do have the, the, 
in some ways the same language and the same ways of thinking and talking about these things. And so my final contribution to this discussion would be, would just be this. We can never say less about the church than what we've said in this episode when you talk about the church's inner life. But as we'll see in the catechism, we sure can say a whole lot more. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I know we're we're going to do that, but this really is such a good starting place for this dialogue. It really Anything is. And you, Matt, as we close down? Yeah, the only thing I would just add to that is uh, if if someone had asked you all, you know, as an American Baptist or as a Foursquare pastor, like what what does your church say about what the Foursquare church is at its very core? Um, you know, I don't know that if somebody asked me, well, if somebody asked me as a Nazarene or a free Methodist, I don't know that I could have told you even where to look to find that <laughs> that statement. <laughs> but but I don't know um, that a lot of Christians think this way. There are Christians who certainly do, but uh, very often if you go to the What We Believe or Who We Are parts of the website, you get something mm-hmm. um, less robust than this, we'll just say. Sure. Uh, less robust well, I would have— um, you know, again, with my focus on the invisible. If I'd have read church, this, I would have said, "Man, we should use some of this stuff on our website." Like that's what I probably would have said. <laughs> with my focus on with with my focus on the church as invisible, and that is as comprised of all those scattered throughout the world and throughout history who have been members of Jesus' mystical body by regeneration, given the gift of the Holy Spirit, forgiven for their sins, following Jesus. Then, to that extent, I would have said, "Yeah." All these people are the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. All these people are those living stones being built up into this temple. All of those people are the are the branches that are connected to the vine and they need to abide in the vine in order to live and not be broken off and all that. And yeah, all of those are members of Christ's body, members of Christ's bride. I would have said all of that. And then I would have yeah. just, I, I, I guess there was a way of diminishing the importance of the, the visible structure. And I would have just yeah. said, well, you know, the Foursquare Church, Matt, you know, they've got their structure and they're doing what they think is right. And my Baptist structure is similar, but we're different. And there's nothing we can do about it because we disagree on some theology. I, I would have just kind of downplayed the, the visible elements in terms of their importance mm-hmm. and uh, something like that. And I guess you'd say the same thing, Kenny, or something similar. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. why I say we, we can't say less, but as we'll see, we sure we will can say more. and will, we will say, say more. more. Yeah, the other thing is that when I opened up this part of the catechism to see what the church said about what the church is, I expected something much more like, a, I don't know, one of those 500-page bills that they put through Congress that nobody has any idea what it's about, you know, bylaws and, you know, tri-laws yeah. and quad laws and such. And it's, this is actually something very, like, poetic and beautiful and, like— It sure is. Yeah, it's, it's and very, not what you And very scriptural. And very scriptural. scriptural. Very scriptural. All right, gentlemen, All we're right. going to have to— we're going to have to get onto more of this here in just a little bit. Uh, in the meantime, thank you for joining us for this particular episode of On the Journey as we continue to unpack what the church says about what the church is, at least the Catholic Church. Uh, and we look forward to you joining us next time. You can find previous episodes and other great stuff from us at chnetwork.org. Uh, you can also go to our online community. We'd love to see you in there. That's community.chnetwork.org. And, of course, this is all made possible by your generous support to join the family of supporters uh, to make it continue to be possible go to chnetwork.org slash compass i'm matt swaim and thank you to my colleagues kenny burchard and ken hensley gentlemen we'll talk to you next time around okay we'll see see you you next week